That's what, that's what I get from my friend. <laughs> Trey, thanks for always recording these. I appreciate that. Um, Luke 5, through, 1 through 11. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He, took, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night uh, long and haven't caught anything. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. Also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. And when they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. So we've been talking about Jesus as a divine redo, or a, what do we, a recapitulation of Israel. And in part, we've been talking about all the ways that uh, he goes through the events that are parallel to the great founding events of Israel. So uh, crossing the Jordan, uh, paralleled in baptism, uh, uh, the exile paralleled in the temptation, yada, yada, yada. But it's important to keep in mind that Israel is not, for those of you who are in Sunday school today, you'll catch on. Israel is not the reference event here. That uh, what Jesus, in redoing Israel, it's not just about fixing whatever happened with Israel. It's about uh, Jesus is redoing Israel new and old because uh, he'd like to, um, I don't know, demonstrate that both, his, both Israel's struggle, struggle and his struggles are uh, crucial moments in the cosmos uh, that are even bigger than Israel, but what they're really about is how much God loves humanity, how much God loves the world, how much God desires to be in relationship with us. So uh, Beth and I went on our first date in like three years uh, on uh, Valentine's Day, and we went to a movie, which is something we used to do all the time, so we went to see, and we, see, we went to see 1917. Yeah, right? Well, I mean, like, we're, we're old and out of it enough that basically Oscar buzz is the only thing that we have, you know, if you get one movie every couple of years, you're going to uh, basically have a Venn diagram between Oscar buzz and Rotten Tomatoes. So, because other than that, I've seen, like, Pixar movies and Star Wars movies and superhero movies and, like, all the movies that all of us have to watch because our kids are real excited about them. And they're good, too. Don't get me wrong. I, mean, I also like them, but that, that's pretty much dictated my movie-going diet. Uh... And, you know, it was like great to, uh, we had a good time. It's great to hang out with her. She's pretty fun to hang out with, et cetera. And we were like, we were like the classic old married couple at the movie because Beth slept through the first half of 1917 and then I slept through the second half. So between the two of us, we like uh, could re- reconstruct the movie and that was nice. So there's this great scene in the movie, if you haven't seen it, that's basically like, because uh, the movie's basically like a mashup of Saving Private Ryan and Apocalypse Now and then they set it in World War I. Uh, so anyway, interesting, good. Uh, and there's a scene in the movie where this, uh, this guy is uh, crossing the battle lines uh, in World War I. You know, that means running across trenches and dead man's or no man's land. And uh, he like, has to go meet up with some other British troops. And the uh, scene of uh, one of the scenes in there is him seeing all these soldiers uh, presumably gathered around on a Sunday. And 
there's one soldier in this beautiful voice singing that old uh, spiritual wayward stranger as the other men, uh, which is like beautiful. If you haven't uh, listened to it, uh, you should listen to it. And so I was listening to it, uh, taking my own advice. And it's, if you don't know the song, it's a song about someone talking about crossing the Jordan and uh, all the people that they'll see on the other side of the Jordan. And uh, again, if you were in Sunday school today, the, this is a difference between a literal and a metaphorical uh, reference, because uh, Gabe basically switched the song, because that's what happens in our house when you have something on Alexa, is one of the kids switch it, and he's like, I'm tired of hearing about all the people that this person's going to see on the other side. You know, why is, why is this guy singing on and on forever about what's going to happen when he crosses this stupid river? So we listen to uh, Rednecks' Cotton Eye Joe instead. Um, but the, you know, uh, the, the thing I wanted to say to him is that the reference event here is not just the crossing of the Jordan, but uh, you know, the Jordan here represents what? It represents uh, that each one of us faces and confronts death, and that we face and confront death, both deaths of others that we care about and our own death, and we have a hope that uh, there is also, uh, in our crossing of the Jordan, not simply the end of our story, but um, that we, uh, we might be reunited with not only the ones that we care about, but with, uh, with our God and maker. So, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan or the crossing of the Jordan is sung about in a spiritual or Jesus uh, sitting here out on the water today. These are all things that uh, refer to the work not only of redoing Israel, but of uh, Jesus making a journey for us, inviting us to a new promised land and hailing us across the eternal Jordan. So that's, that's, what, that's, that's what we have to see in, in looking at the, the verse for today. It's a redo of Israel, but it's about connecting with what exactly it is that Jesus was doing for us. And one of the big things that we'll see in the remainder of Luke and Acts is that Jesus is redoing Israel to connect human beings with God, to make it universal, to invite everybody in. And then he's going to consistently have these battles with the old Israel, who feels a little upstaged by and a little resentful about Jesus's kind of reframing of the mission. And that, to me, is the basic story of the unfolding of the early church. It is, uh, if you were, again, in Sunday school, it's a literal abstract and a metaphorical concrete at the same time. Jesus is a new Israel and is opening us up to uh, uh, the new kingdom. So Luke 5 says, Once while Jesus is beside the lake of uh, Gennesaret, the crowd is pressing in on him. He sees boats on the shore of the lake. The fishermen had got out of them, were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats and asked Simon to put it a little bit away from shore. So we know from last week, Jesus's launch is going pretty well. It's, uh, I, I like have this obsessive thing about putting uh, stories of the gospel into modern day business terms because Beth made me listen to some Christian podcast that was about leaning in. And so I was like, well, okay, uh, might as well uh, steal it all, all the time, because uh, it's clearly superior to the original. I don't know really what that means. That's strange. Anyway, so I'm doing it as a, uh, to, to enjoy the irony in it. So his launch has gone well. Uh, Jesus has been, uh, you know, he was invited to kind of walk off a, a cliff the week before. So uh, in the last verse, some things did go bad, but overall, he's back in a fishing village, and people are pressing him to see him. And then there's this, like, beautiful, tasty little literary detail that, uh, you know, Luke Acts puts in that we're going to meditate on for a little bit because Jesus is sitting there in this fishing town and he's, what does he do? He's in the boat and he pushes out a little bit and then he sat down, this is verse three, and taught the crowds from the boat. Well, it seems like a relatively unremarkable part, but one of the first things we learn to do in uh, learning to pay close attention to uh, how a story is being told is to compare and contrast 
different settings where the same thing is going on. So, I don't know, for the second time in the span of, cha- of, of, of a chapter, at least as our Bibles uh, demarcate the uh, space that's gone on in the story, Jesus is sitting to teach. Text points out twice that he's sitting to teach. Now, the first time he sat to teach, where was he? He was in a synagogue. He was surrounded by his relatives. And he wasn't just in any old synagogue. Where was he? He was in Nazareth which was the place where the Davidic line was supposed to jump back up. Uh, it was a place that was like, I don't know, it's the nationalist religious practice of uh, making Israel great again. It's something that had, uh, for so long, you can imagine, we talked about last, last week, those folks were sitting in the synagogue and they were talking about how mad they were about Herod and about the Romans and how, you know, just how, what a terrible deal they'd gotten. And they were sons and daughters of David, and I don't know, as at least as I imagine it, in that synagogue, people basically started to lose the difference between what was resentment and what was national pride and what was their religious practice, and it all just kind of got mashed up into this weird, angry little boil that was ready to explode. And what does Jesus do? He sits down in there and he delivers them a pretty tough message, as you recall, right? Prophet has no honor in their hometown. But now he's going to sit down again, and he's sitting down, weirdly enough, in a boat on the water in a fishing village to teach. And I don't know, once you think about this as an intentional literary contrast, it really starts to say something. Because sitting to teach for Jesus is typically a representation that he is going to do something serious where he tells the story of the scripture in a place typically that we understand to be sacred. And you all may remember from a while back, I used to love this shtick about the difference between the sacred and the holy. Anybody remember the difference? Sacred, holy? The sacred is like the line we draw where we say things on this side of the line are dirty and things on this side of the line are clean and things on this side of the line are impure and things on this side of the line are pure. And so there are some people who are in a sacred space who are sacred by virtue of being so much better than everybody else. And then there are all these people outside the sacred space. And one of the cases I made in the past is that Jesus doesn't really care about the sacred. What he cares about is the holy. He cares about, he didn't really care about that line as much as he cares about saying that I'm inviting everyone to come to know and to encounter me. And so much of the story of the New Testament is about uh, norms of uh, religious practice in terms of cleanliness being violated. It's about curtains tearing. It's about altars breaking. It's about Jesus basically busting down everything that everyone thought about what was sacred and instead inviting people into a relationship that is holy, where people are invited to see the face of God. So it's not as concerned with the outside and the inside. And I don't know if you think about it, The first time Jesus is sitting down in the synagogue, which is quite literally the sacred boundary between the place where you'd hear God's word and the places beyond. The synagogue was uh, a place where, uh, I don't know, you could hear the sacred scripture spoken to you. And outside of it, you know, uh, it wasn't really the place for that kind of, I don't know, see scripture, something kind of like holy and pure and damaged by being put in a context. And we have to protect it by keeping it inside the bounds of the synagogue. And Jesus doesn't like that very much. So now he's sitting down in, of all places, a stinky, dirty, ritually unclean boat that's filled with fish guts. And he's, uh, he's, <laughs> he's explicating the scripture. And what is he saying? He's saying that Uh, I don't care about places that are sacred or exceptional or ceremonial. What I care about is the places that are mundane and profane, which is, at least as I understand, the opposite of sacred. So the message uh, is about Jesus sitting down as, as comfortably in the synagogue as he is in the boat. And the other thing is when he's in the synagogue, he's like, there's no honor in prophets' hometowns, and you all want a miracle, and I'm not going to give you a miracle. I'm going to do miracles in other places. And Jesus is really just kind of, 
you know, setting that crowd up to say, here are things that you could be excited about. And then he's going to knock them down or give them the business a little bit, put fire something across their bow by talking about their partiality or their parochial understanding. But when Jesus sits down in this profane place, in this like mundane place, in this place that's like the most average, normal, unremarkable setting you can imagine, except for uh, its smell potentially, what does he do? Instead of shooting a torpedo across the boundary of the religious establishment, he invites everybody in to abundance and, and tells them about the possibility of uh, encountering abundance both in their work and in their lives, but in understanding and seeing God. And that's big. He's taking a profane and non-sacred place and he's declaring it holy by sitting down. He's declaring the holiness of mundane places and profane places. And instead of confronting the religious establishment, he's going to go to these folks who are on the very margins of society and he's going to invite them into a new kind of abundance. And not to put too fine a point on it, but he's going to do it. I mean, I don't know, like boats go on water. And water it has, as we've always discussed at Resurrection, maybe about as much as ancient Middle Eastern agrarian and animal husbandry practices. But water has this connection with death and with destruction, with chaos. That's why we're baptized in it. It judges, it destroys, it puts to death things that we need to be changed. And so Jesus is not just rejecting the sacredness of the temple. He's not just uplifting what's mundane by sitting in a fishing boat. But Jesus is saying, I am in the waters of death and destruction and judgment for you. I am sitting on top of them and I am teaching from them. I have gotten rid of the boundary between the sacred and the profane. I have declared the entirety of the world holy and there is no place that is exempt from my redemption, not even the boundary of death. That's incredible and a powerful thing that Jesus is saying, especially for those of us that are at that boundary in one way or another, experience that boundary for other people, that Jesus is with us even in those places where we confront the things that we fear and that there is grace and that he is reaching out to us. And in fact, he's calling disciples from that boundary. He's calling disciples and he's getting them to, to join up with him. He's not doing it from his fancy Davidic relatives. Where does he call disciples from? From this fishing village and a place that people would have thought of as being, as we've talked about, no place. It was like a place that was under everybody's boot. It was under the boot of the tax collectors and the uh, uh, Herod and the tax administrators and the toll collectors and the big fishing syndicates and the people who sold salt and uh, the, the groups of laborers and the polks who controlled where raw goods went. And like, these were people who were, as we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, were about, as you know, I mean, Nazareth, they might have said, hey, Nazareth's story was based on being locked out and we're tired of Herod and we're the real and one and true heirs and we're going to sit in this synagogue with all our relatives. But really, Nazareth is kind of a powerful place to be because you at least have the story about how you're supposed to be a victim and a story about how you're supposed to be great and you may not be rich or powerful but you're far enough away from Herod that you don't have to really deal with Herod or deal with Rome quite as much but these folks in this fishing village they're nobodies they're not people who have a claim to a a, a, a divine or even the Davidic line they're not people who have a claim to uh, you know uh, have the autonomy to worry about that stuff they're dudes who had to fish all day and they were subject in basically in every way to the uh, systems that made up Rome and Roman oppression and I don't know Jesus goes to those guys in that space which is supposed to be utterly and completely profane and mundane and he says to them I am here for you I am here to commune with you and shoot he's even there to give him fishing advice that's the funniest part about it so Jesus gets out in the boat and, you know, he, he looks to Simon and he says, uh, you know, why don't you put it out in deep water and let down your nets for a catch? 
And then uh, this is one of those, uh, he says, uh, Simon says, Master, we've worked all night, but we haven't caught nothing. If you say so, I'll let down the nets. This is a really funny and fairly rich exchange to me because it's an example of how Bible commentaries have no sense of humor. <laughs> like, everyone's like, uh, clearly Simon has some implicit sense of Jesus' authority, so he uses the term master. And I, I, don't, I don't think so. The term he uses is like doctor. So uh, I think Peter might have been calling, should have, well, let's call him like turbo or sport or chief. You know, he's like, guy, listen, uh, we were fishing all night and we already rolled up the nets, but if you say so. And so, uh, you know, like that would have been, I don't know, it was kind of a big deal because like those nets, that was the majority of their livelihood. You had to spend all your time keeping, uh, taking care of of your nets and your time and your money. And they'd been fishing all day and they'd already gone through all the work of putting it back. But here's this guy that, I don't know, doesn't really seem particularly like a fisherman. And I don't know, is preaching to large crowds out of, out of boats. And, oh, well, what the heck, we'll give it a try. So we go out and they uh, go out deeper and they put the nets in the water. And of course, when they had done this, uh, Luke uh, says, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. Now that, to me, is the thing about the new kingdom, about the new economy, about the new world. The old vision of the kingdom, the one that we had in that synagogue in Nazareth, the one that we have in so many Christian churches in the United States today, is a nostalgia for what I'd call the national sacred. A nostalgia for a time when everything was good with our nation and where our nation was understood to be uh, fully aligned with uh, Christian principles and Christian values. And uh, there was a kind of nostalgia for redefining who we are and how we interact with the world by imagining that we're in power and that everyone is subject to what we do as good and righteous and moral, uh, moral people. But Jesus, and as we talked about last week, that vision is oftentimes bound up with resentment, like making sure that everybody who had kept us down gets what, they're, uh, what, what they deserve. But Jesus is declaring a new holy nation, and its terms are not defined by justice uh, as, in, as recrimination. They're defined by uh, abundance. They're defined by last week, as we talked about, repentance without recrimination, uh, uh, and going through a test without failing, and jubilee without vengeance. So here Jesus is on the water in this profane place, teaching and declaring to these people uh, a new kingdom, and that new kingdom doesn't require, well, it's weird, it doesn't require the violent overthrow of the system, it doesn't require condemnation of Herod, it doesn't require all the nationalist screeds that folks might have expected last week. When Jesus makes his first and most substantial intervention into the lives of his disciples on that fishing village, what does he do? He brings them an incredible catch of fish. And that's pretty significant to me. Because it's, it's it matters for how we think about the kingdom. Like, we're so used to thinking about the, uh, the relationship to the orders of power, or the orders of injustices, resistance or daring things, tearing things down or retribution or any of those things right here. But what Jesus says is that before we get to the, you know, tearing down Herod and, of course, what is terrible about Rome and before we get to fixing all that stuff, the first thing that I want to do is intervene in the lives of the people that I am in contact with, is go to those people who are struggling, and I want to let them experience complete and utter abundance. I want to let them experience 
the, uh, the idea that they don't have to struggle. I want them to experience the idea that they don't have to uh, fight uh, to eke out a living anymore. What Jesus does is Jesus comes to those people individually and what he uh, opens to them is the possibility of participating just a little bit in a taste of the kingdom which is to come, a kingdom where there is no limit, no bound, a kingdom where there is no want, no need, no death, no sin, no destruction. And so in this instance, Jesus does it by bringing them a ton of fish. Now, I don't know, if I think about myself and what, I don't know, if I put myself in the case of Simon Peter, absent some uh, divine intervention, I'd say, hey, every, you know, even a broken clock is right, uh, well, once a day or twice a day, depending on what, uh, you know, uh, digital or whatever. But, um, you know, what Simon Peter sees that Jesus suggests this, he perhaps heard what he had to say in his sermons, and what's amazing is that he sees the abundance and the bounty of the fish, and he puts it all together in his head, and what does he say? He gets to his knees, and he says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That's a hard reaction to understand. When Peter sees it, and the scripture tells us here, it's not that he just he sees us, but the Greek word is idon, so he apprehends the idea. He falls to his knees and declares, what? I'd fall to my knees and be like, I am a terrible fisherman. <laughs> I might fall to my knees and be like, I'm sorry for calling you chief. That's a lot of fish. But Simon Peter falls to his knees and says, I'm a sinner. And it's this common biblical motif for people who are in the direct presence of the divine to say that their first reaction is that they're sinners. It's something that we see in the Old Testament all the time. You know, Moses uh, says it in Exodus 3. Gideon says it in, Ju- in, in, in Judges uh, in 6. I, Isaiah does it uh, when, he's, when Isaiah first is kind of commissioned and or anointed. Uh, each one of them in encountering the power of, of God and the manifestation of the divine almost always reflects on themselves and says, I am simply a sinner. Calvin remarked, for, and this is the only time you'll hear me cite Calvin favorably, but he remarked of a couple of these passages that a natural response to seeing the glory of God is to understand the depth of your own sin. There's, and that's, I think, yes, but there's something else here. Jesus understands that whatever brings Simon Peter to his knees to reflect on his own self or sinfulness, what is the emotion it runs through? What is the emotion that Jesus fills in for us that he sees the fish, he sees everything, he falls to his knees and he says, I'm a sinner. When Jesus sees that, he issues, and gosh, I love this uh, as, a, as, a, as a theme and a concept. He issues, as we've talked about before, the most common direct command in the New Testament. The most common direct command of God, do not be afraid. Simon Peter says, sees that Jesus has a kind of fundamental control over the basic rules and conditions of existence. He can make the fish jump into the net, jump out of the net. He can, you know, uh, uh, execute the scriptures while, while sitting on a boat. He sees all that stuff. And what he feels bad about, I think, is the incredible reversal that Jesus is effective. First, he calls Jesus champ and tells him he doesn't know what he's talking about. Then uh, Jesus jumps into the boat and they go out and uh, he pulls up more fish than you could ever imagine. And he's humbled not by the fact that Jesus is a better fisherman, but he's humbled by the idea that, uh, that, that this boat preacher, uh, that this guy... 
uh, is able to make a call about what's happening in reality, but more than that, that he can see what is going on in his own heart, that he can read the response and why he turns to the concept of sinfulness. Simon sees not only the manifestation of God in the miracle and in the preaching and in being on the boat and, and making the call and bringing the fish, but he sees that Jesus sees him. And he sees that Jesus sees the way that response runs through fear. And he sees all those things and he says, do not be afraid from now on, you will be catching people. We always talk about this verse as if it is the people at the end that you should underline if you're giving an actor notes on how to say this. So from now on, you'll be catching people as opposed to fish. But what I think Peter really hears here, what Peter really hears here is the you from now on, you will be catching people like I just did to you, is the enthymeme. It's the thing that Jesus implies, that Peter is caught by, Peter is taken up by Jesus. Jesus sees his heart, he sees the presence of fear, he sees the power of Jesus, and Jesus said, what I have just done to you, you will do in my name to and for others. Jesus knows that uh, Jesus uh, sees the heart of, uh, that Peter knows that Jesus sees his heart. He sees his response to the miracle of the face. And the, 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 the Greek word that Jesus uses here for fishing, zogron, it means capturing. And here's a hint about what's going on there. The, when the Greeks would have talked about a particularly powerful teacher, they would have said that that teacher was a zogron of the heart. That that person was able to capture the heart. And, and, and Jesus is subtly saying here, Peter, I see that you've been captured by me, by my face, by the glory that is manifest in me, by what a, what a by the Father's uh, manifestation in the Son, by the presence of the Spirit, by my divinity and body, and you too will capture others' hearts. And so, in verse 11, when they had packed their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. They t- pulled in their boats and packed everything away. They left it all behind because they had met this new Israel. They had met and they, here's the thing, the scripture is written here. I've heard so many sermons about this where people say, well, they probably heard a bunch of really compelling messages before they went out and fished. And Jesus's reputation was well known. So we know that they would have jumped on and followed after Jesus, obviously. But I think the beautiful thing about this passage is it doesn't really talk very much about what Jesus says, because apparently that isn't entirely relevant. What's relevant here is that Jesus brings in this abundance of all these fish that he looks Simon Peter and his partners in the eye, and then he says, follow me, and they do. Think about that for a moment. The word for follow here, which is akulothlethsan, implies, one theologian has suggested, a different way of thinking, a different way of reasoning. It comes from the Greek word, which is a copulative unitive particle alpha, which just means you're uniting two things, uh, and then kuluethon, which means road or path. So when Jesus says to follow me, he's essentially saying, join me on the road or the path. It's also the same word that you'd have for an exhortation or a set of instructions. And so Jesus says to follow him, to join on his road or his path, an invitation, an exhortation, a command, and meeting Jesus entails for these men all of these things. They don't calculate or weigh the risks. They don't project their futures. They don't think about the implications for their fishing business. They don't, and this is like, resurrection is a funny crowd because like, 
everyone here in some way is like an analyst or a planner or an executive or a strategist or a person who is in, in part here because they like to carefully weigh and think through things and maybe we haven't fit into other churches in the past quite as well because you like to ask questions about things and the folks in this crowd are generally folks who I appreciate for having a high threshold for analytical reason and for thinking and for all those things. But as important as that is and as important that has been for each one of us in their lives, the way we're told this story is that these people see the abundance of Jesus and then they simply respond to the call to follow. We don't see them uh, pulling out the proofs or reasoning or any of those things. It is the kind of thing that I love this kind of vision of going on a path. And I don't know if you've ever stepped, the best example I can think of it is love. I don't know if you've ever stepped on a path initially and you weren't really sure where the path was going. You weren't even sure what you were doing on the path, but you had sufficient faith for some reason to take that first step. And it was only years and years later that you looked back on that first step and you saw everything that was entailed in it and everything that it meant for you. And that path only became fully meaningful to you after you had walked a ways down it. But somehow you have to have that leap to take that first step and to enter into real and true love. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, take the first step on this path with me. You won't be able to see now how profoundly transformative it will be in your life, but you will someday be able to look back and say it is the thing that has changed me, has remade, has made the difference in everything, has radically reconfigured my life so that I am a new person, a part of a new Israel, a world which is a world without limit. De- disease, death, destruction is simply one where we're offered abundance in seeing and responding to the face of God. And he says all those things simply by saying, follow me. And the very next thing that happens is they drag their boats up on shore and they follow him. They say yes, and they put one foot in front of another. The reasons may only become clear as we follow, and Lord, help us to know and to love and to follow you in that way. Amen. The questions, talk, concerns, feedback, etc.